All right, welcome to Power Shift. I'm Rebecca Irby, and today I am so, so incredibly excited to welcome Leon Su. He is the foreign minister to the Kingdom of Hawaii. Leon, Leon, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, my pleasure to be here. Awesome. Aloha, Excellent. everybody. Aloha, aloha. So, Leon, can you tell us what are we eating today? Oh, okay. Well, our first food is, is the staple of, of Hawaii, and it's this pasty looking thing. It's called <laughs> and it comes in a, in a container like this. Okay. Yeah. I That's tried to food. look for it here. I couldn't find any. Yeah. Uh, you may be, they may have distributed frozen poi, which you have to then mm. But it comes from a plant. Ah called the taro plant. Ah, taro. Okay, yeah. This is one that I have downstairs in, in a Very pot. nice. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's yours. Yeah. Oh, and, um, so fun. So, uh, <clears throat> the plant grows to about three feet high and, when, and, and it's ready to, um, to harvest. Usually, it's two ways to grow it. If you grow it in the, in the water, in a, in a flooded field, or it can actually grow on dry land also. It just takes a little bit longer that way. But um, from that, we get, we get this corn. Um, yeah. That's at the bottom of it. And then that's pounded, uh, what's cooked, and then pounded into this, this paste. And that oh, is a It's a highly, one of the most highly nutritious foods in the world. And uh, th- here in Hawaii, if uh, there are babies that are uh, allergic to uh, a colicky or allergic to uh, mm-hmm. to milk uh they feed them poi a, a watered down version of poi and and the baby gets along very well and this has been the staple in polynesia for many many general well, thousands of years right um, <clears throat> but in hawaii uh hawaii is the only one that pounds it into a paste like this okay keeps it this way for various reasons but but it's it turns out to be a very effective way of using this plant now the rest of the plant it has large leaves so the leaves are used also it's very nutritious as well um, do you eat them or you use it to cook yeah, in yeah, eat them. both oh both okay uh, so the, um I, i'll talk more about taro later but the other dish i have here is called lao lao now you see it wrapped up in leaves um, yeah. And this, this outer layer, which I'm going to remove right now, are tea leaves. And tea leaves are uh, lo- uh, long leaves that are used. Yes, yeah, it's spelled T-I. T-I. Okay, thank you for clarifying. So not tea that you're drinking, yeah, but T-I leaves. Yeah, it's a long, long leaf. And, it's, uh, uh, and, and that's used to wrap uh, foods that are going to be steamed. Okay. And, uh, um, it almost looks like seaweed. Yeah, almost, but but actually, it's just a long, a long leaf, broad leaf, and um, and so when I unwrap the the lao lao, this this food is called lao lao. Yeah. This is what it looks like. Now okay. this is the leaf of the taro plant, so that's the edible part. The other tea leaf mm-hmm. is not really edible. It's right. just to so that gives the, the meat inside the flavor and also it is very nutritious as a vegetable so it kind of tastes a little like spinach oh okay it has a consistency because now this has been steamed 
uh, and the, the old way is to steam it underground in, in a, what they call an emu, which is mm-hmm. an underground um, uh, oven. So um, anyway, so and, and by steaming it, steam it for several hours underground on hot oh, rock. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then Butter. that steams the food. So fish and a whole bunch of other things were cooked that way. Um, the taro was cooked that way also, and then native pounded. Pounded. Yeah. Nice. And so uh, inside of this uh, lao lao uh, is, is pork, because pork was uh, a main staple uh, protein for the Hawaiians along with fish. Yeah. So, so it comes out here. I've just broken it open a little bit. So the pork is in there. There's also a bit of fish in there. And okay. Then, Can you hold it up a little bit higher? You can't, or put your camera down a little bit. Ah, okay. Oh, ooh, nice. And there, there's taro and pork in there, or inside is just uh, all no, different meats. Pork. Uh, this one has just pork and fish, but you can put almost anything into it. Yeah. Yeah. People put sweet potatoes or taro into it. Too. Yeah. So, um, so that's uh, that main dish. Uh, and then uh, the third one is a sweet potato, you know, it comes like this, mm-hmm. and that's steamed, and it looks like this. Now, this particular sweet potato is an import. This is a comes from Okinawa. From, yeah, a, that's from Japan. Yeah, purple inside, yeah. But, mm-hmm. so, um, but it's very popular here. Uh, although we do have a number of varieties of local uh, sweet potato, also. So. Yeah. These are our main uh, dishes, and I also had poke, but I forgot to bring it out. But poke is the only one I have, so I'll show oh, that one. Okay, you have the poke, good. Yeah, so, um, I thought that it was going to be um, fresh chunks of fish, but I, I always go for the spicy because I love spicy, and then I realized that they <laughs> chopped it all up to make it spicy. But well, I So see. I don't think it looks like a traditional poke bowl. So, I tried. I'm in Detroit. It's um, yeah, you know, not by the ocean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, we have Hawaiians spread all over the place, so there are specialty markets, or you can actually order it off the internet. Uh, yeah. All these foods as well. Um, so, anyway, so that's four of our our main dishes. We also have breadfruit and uh, sugar cane and all kinds of other things that are known as canoe foods. These are foods that were brought by the Polynesians to Hawaii when they first came and settled here. So right. that in itself was an amazing feat because you know the Polynesians were the best sailors in the world. Voyagers, and, absolutely. Voyagers, right. And um, so if you saw the film Moana, you I get did, a, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, we loved it too because it was actually pretty faithful to our culture and to our okay. traditions. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm part uh, Polynesian as well. So um and I'm I'm trying to learn more. Yes, my uh my grandmother was born in Indonesia and um yes, yeah, so just tracing some of our history and trying to learn more about my ancestors. So yeah, that's part of our roots. Indonesia, South yeah. Southeast Asia. Actually we trace all the way back to Egypt. And uh, you know, the Middle East. Yeah. In fact, uh, taro, the, the plant I just showed you in what, from which poi is made, is actually the oldest cultivated food in the world. In the world, yes. Yeah. I learned that recently. 
Yeah, there are references to it from 6,000 years ago in, in uh, ancient Egypt. In Egypt, yeah. Yeah. And how so, it made it all the way to the islands, quite, quite right. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we are voyagers. We are we are people who have settled an ocean that is, you know, a third of the of the size of the of the, of the surface of the planet. Yeah. Um, all the all the continents on the in the world can fit into the Pacific Ocean when you put them all together. And so this ocean is vast, and our ancestors settled every little part of it. Um, a thousand years before Christopher Columbus even ventured forth, you know, so uh, and way before, you know, well, of course, the Phoenicians were great sailors also, and they were they're part of our heritage as well. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so we're a, a, a voyaging people, and we've settled this vast watery continent with a few specks of land. We, you know, a few puddles of land in this vast ocean, um, and but so we're ocean people, and and we refer to our our ocean, you know, as part of our lifestyle. Uh, you know, we're not we're not survivors of the ocean. The ocean is our friend, and and it's our main highway between our islands. Um, so we have a very different outlook from people who grow up on continents, and, and in a way, that's where the clash of cultures come in. Because of, of the of the perception as to what is important and and what sustains us, and things like that. So, um, so the food is really indicative of of who we are. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Hawaiian culture. Yeah, and, uh, I was going to ask um, why you chose these particular dishes, um, like specifically poke. Um, it's kind of it's spread around the world now. Yeah. Um, you yeah. can get a poke bowl anywhere, and right. um, but I was wondering why why you chose these four four dishes specifically. If you could yes, talk a little bit about specifically that, because they are are really ancient foods, and we still eat them regularly today. You know, many people this is their daily diet, or pretty close to it. Uh, of course, we have lots of other foods here. Very, very, very eclectic and um, international in our our food choices here. And we've adopted lots of Japanese, Chinese, and everything like that, and and adapted them into being really Hawaiian style foods. So it, it Hawaii is quite a smorgasbord, but it also is part of our history. The history is that where our roots are, and and what our perception of who we are is really rooted in. Uh, told in our foods as well. The taro plant, for instance, um, there was about 15 years ago, there was a, an attempt, and actually a successful attempt, to, to uh, create some GMO, genetically, genetically modified taros. Now, our, the ancient Hawaiians and the Polynesians were tremendous horticulturists. You know, they already de developed many, many hybrids. There were over 200 hybrids of taro itself. Oh, really? Not sweet potatoes and all that. And in Hawaii, we had 120 of those varieties uh, wow. actively used by our people before the, the coming of the white man. So uh, we were very active horticulturists um, and knew what to do, how to raise our, our foods, etc. Um, the About 
uh, like I said, about 15, maybe 20 years ago, uh, scientists from the University of Hawaii and, and other researchers decided that they would genetically modify taro. So it would be, you know, more hardy in certain situations and all that. Uh, our people uh, uh, protested that. And we led a very strong protest about it. And I mean, we were very adamant about them not tampering with our food yeah. because it, the food is directly related to who we are as a people. And, and this is, you know, how, uh, the, the way that Hawaiians uh, believe or think. And it's even part of our, 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 uh, our history or our, 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 um, uh, our heritage. Yeah. And so the taro plant in particular is held in highest esteem by Hawaiians because it was from this taro that we feel we were descended. And the, the okay. legend of the story goes that Papa and Wakea, so Papa is the sky father, Wakea is the earth mother, uh, they unite and they produce an offspring. And the offspring is, uh, is stillborn, unfortunately, named mm. Aloha. Uh, so they bury the stillborn and then they produce other offspring, you know, uh, who, who live. But the stillborn sprouts up this plant called the taro. And so we, we regard the taro as our firstborn, as the mm. brother of our, of our race. And so um, that's how, and, and it sustains us. And its job has been throughout history to sustain us as a people. So that's why it's held in such high regard. So the argument against the GMO was how dare you, you um, mess with, us, with our DNA. And actually yeah. we prevailed. The University of Hawaii backed down and they decided not to register or to claim um, to, to, um, to register these, uh, the uh, genetic code of the tarot that they had created and to leave it alone. Okay, so, excellent. So that decision came because of an outcry over a cultural understanding of who we are. So it, it was a major breakthrough. Now going back to to the situation of Hawaii. Um, so all of our foods, by the way, have, have histories like this. Okay. And um, going back to um, the history of Hawaii, uh, we are at a major um, crossroads, let's say in that uh, 128 years ago, the United States uh, assisted in the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. So the Hawaii was a, so a sovereign independent country. Um, and of course, through time immemorial, it, it was a nation of its own. It had for a while lost track of its connections to the other islands uh, about six or 700 years ago. And that, that was over an incident that happened and it was a deliberate dis disconnect and then we come, kind of forgot about our voyaging traditions for about 500 years. And then, so that, like Moana, this is the rediscovery of our, our voyaging tradition. And that coming back coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, was part of the reawakening of our cultural uh, background. Because our culture and our language and all these things had been overwhelmed and actually uh, practically eradicated by the United States occupation of our islands. 
128 years ago, the United States helped with a coup d'etat uh, of a bunch of sugar planters in Hawaii who wanted to take control of the government so that they could ensure the profits that they were making from selling sugar to the United States. So they felt if Hawaii was annexed to the United States, we would not have to pay duties or, or tariffs. Um, and they would not have to do that and they would have bigger profits and a huge steady market. Um, and so that was their motivation for overthrowing the Hawaiian Kingdom. So when they initially proposed annexing to Hawaii, of course, the Hawaiian people and the king and and everybody else in Hawaii objected or strongly opposed yeah. it because we did not want to give up our sovereignty to be under the United States. So the sugar planters cooked up a scheme to overthrow the government. Um, but they did so with the help of the Americans. And so for several years, they plotted with the Americans, particularly with the military branch uh, of the United States, uh, offering them this wonderful harbor in in Hawaii on Oahu called Pearl Harbor. And, and that was seen as the most ideal harbor in the entire Pacific. Uh, and, and of course, in the middle of the Pacific, it made a very strategic position. So the sugar plant was offered to tr a trade-off if the United States would help to overthrow the Hawaiian Kingdom government, then they would gain control of Pearl Harbor. And then of course, when Hawaii became annexed to the United States and the US would have complete control right. over Hawaii. And so that was the scheme and that was carried out starting in 1893. That's when the okay. overthrow took place. And the US landed troops and threatened our government or our queen um, with violence um, unless she capitulated. She did not capitulate, however. What she did instead was she filed a, uh, a diplomatic protest um, okay. to the United States and said that um, the United States, if it had any kind of honor at all, would get to the root of this, have an investigation and find out what went wrong and then honor the international laws of yeah. ret returning the Hawaiian Kingdom. So she preferred, rather than to go to war against the United States over this issue, she preferred the diplomatic route. And so she, she used that. And it was a very wise choice because she spared us from, you know, uh, from war, from bloodshed. Because even if we were able to repel the initial invaders, um, the United States would be sure to, to call this a provocation for war and send send their troops. Yeah. Um, so, so what happened was that um, what, once and then a few years later in 1898, the United States annexed Hawaii, but they actually did not annex Hawaii in a, in a proper way. They, they manipulated their own laws and manipulated international laws and claimed to have annexed Hawaii just through kind of a self-proclamation and a uh, resolution passed in Congress. But because they had the arms, they had the, the manpower and, and the, the will to do so, they wanted to take over Hawaii anyway. So they they did so uh, over the protests of the of the Hawaiians. Um, coincidentally, and what year? this is 1898, right? 1898. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah, that's when they uh, they did the annexation. From 1893 to 1897, the Hawaiians had mounted a tremendous effort of uh, opposing an annexation and opposing, of course, the overthrow. 
And well, and in 1898, it was President McKinley, right? And that's because I, I've read about and I've been hearing about protests around McKinley High School. Yes, um, yes, and that's that's why, right? Because it was president. Okay, yes, I just wanted so to. McKinley pull was all the, the 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 president who was in office at the time of the overthrow was Benjamin Harrison. Okay, and he was our lame duck president. A couple of months after the overthrow, the new president came in, Grover Cleveland. Grover <laughs> Cleveland thought that the overthrow of Hawaii, particularly with the assistance of the United States, was a, an, a, was an, uh, was a violation of international law and was, it was a horrible thing for the United States to do. So he actually reported to Congress that the U.S. had actually inadvertently um, committed an act of war against a friendly nation, and it was bound by international law to return the Hawaiian Kingdom to its proper jurisdiction. However, members of Congress and um, members uh, of the armed forces and that type of those people uh, refused to, to heed that. And they waited out President McKinley till his term was all out. And I'm um, excuse me, they waited out President Cleveland. Cleveland. Yes, until uh, McKinley came in, who was a very, very adamant believer in manifest destiny mm-hmm. right and so this that is what one the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny rears its ugly head and so cleveland i mean uh, mckinley decides that it would would be advantageous to them to the united states to annex hawaii for pearl harbor for military purposes right. and so they set about on, on a fake news uh, campaign in which they painted the Hawaiians as savages and its leaders as savages and uncouth and uneducated and all that. Now, before this, Hawaii was one of the premier nations of the world. We had treaties with over 40 other countries in the world, all the leading countries. We were recognized by all of them as a sovereign, independent state. We were a very progressive nation. We had helped to uh, in the uh, in the uh, discussions about neutrality, about national international neutrality and things like that. And we have been a very big participant in those discussions. We're a dis, uh, participant in uh, treaty making, uh, in yeah. rules for treaty making, and helped Japan acquire uh, an equal treaty with the, with the West and things like that. So Hawaii was very active in the international community. We had over 130 delegations around the world, either consulates or embassies in, in cities and countries around the world. So it was a very progressive nation. It was also the most literate nation on earth and the most educated nation. People understood politics, they understood world history, they understood science, mathematics, and everything like that. Um, and so it was a very, very uh, um, uh, enlightened uh nation yeah so so when the united states took over the united states already knew this but then the press painted us as a bunch of savages who needed rescuing from ourselves and and you know and so that's the the narrative that went out um through the the particularly the american press and they also uh bullied the international community to not raise a stink about 
this this international violation, this invasion of a foreign country, uh, and they got away with it. Because One at the, the time, the U.S. was so, I mean, the U.S. always, was, not always, but I guess that was at one of the height of its power internationally. And it wasn't at the height. It was at the beginning. At the beginning. It, but Manifest Destiny was, and, and actually McKinley and those people and his cohorts were right. Manifest Destiny was the key for U.S. greatness. You know, they needed to expand beyond their borders. So Hawaii was the experiment, or actually it was the, the pilot project, so to speak. Okay. But they used Hawaii, uh, and the thing that gave uh, McKinley the real opportunity, first of all, we defeated two attempts at uh, treaties of annexation at the U.S. Congress. Uh, 1897 was the last time we defeated it, and resoundingly okay. defeated it. But in 1898, the U.S. gets involved in the Spanish-American War, which is something mm -hmm. the U.S. provoked. Yes. Um, and, and it was done so with with the purpose of not only expelling Spain from the Western Hemisphere, but to gain control, U.S. gaining control over these places, particularly Cuba. And so, so the U.S. provoked this war, and conveniently, um, they went to war against Spain, but part of that war included the Philippines, the Spanish possession of the Philippines. So the U.S. needed Pearl Harbor to, uh, to be able to conduct their war in the Philippines against Spain. But that got over pretty quickly. It was less than a few weeks when when Philippines were surrendered by Spain. Um, so the U.S. was victorious and their their ploy had worked to use Hawaii as the base for, for their ex expansion into the Pacific. But now um, the, the Filipinos who thought that they were being liberated by the Americans because the Filipinos had been fighting wars of liberation for decades against Spain. Now they thought the Americans had liberated them, but the Americans now look at this as their first step, a big step in um, manifest destiny. And so they say, no, now the Philippines are under the United States. So the Filipinos continue their war of liberation, but this time against the, the Americans. The Americans use the naval base as well as our land here to, to send their troops to the Philippines. Um, they're about, they, it was a vicious war. And yep. it, How long did that war last? It lasted about four or five years. Yeah, I was gonna say it was much, much longer than the Spanish-American War. Yes, the Spanish-American war, war is a month long. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the war against the Philippines was that. But now the, the losses that the U.S. suffered suffered was about 5,000 of their troops died okay. in the Philippines. But they inflicted a death rate of almost, well, anywhere between 250,000 to a million uh, Filipinos. Filipinos. That meant almost all of them civilians. Um, and so Seems this was be our so, way. Yeah. So this was a huge example of genocide and of the genocidal practice of or that came into being. The thing is, with Hawaii, uh, during that time, that's when they they passed this fake annexation of Hawaii during the Filipino War, and because they said Hawaii was now 
militarily vital to the United States survival, you know. And uh, so they sold Congress on this and Congress issued a resolution. Uh, there was never a treaty, which is the official way you're supposed to acquire a foreign country. There has to be a treaty uh, cooperating on both sides, right. Um, so, but the U.S. decided to uh, just simply grab Hawaii through a law that they passed, which is a domestic law passed by Congress. Uh, so that's how the United States came to, into control of the Hawaiian Islands. And of course, the rest of the world kept quiet. And they just allowed Hawaii, uh, the United States to have its way. Now, the significant part about this is that, like I said, Hawaii was the pilot project and the Philippines. So from then on, the United States had its way in the same fashion of, of imposing its will upon countries around the world. So the next targets were Central America, Cuba, Central America. And uh, the same things happened there. Uh, basically, it was, a, it was a takeover or a dis, uh, disposing or uh, regime change of, of, of land or of, of countries uh, for commercial purposes. Yeah, uh, and commercial similar, purposes. would you so, say that that's similar to what is happening in the Middle East? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Right, so, yeah. So, but that, that, what they did with Hawaii established the pattern for what the U.S. has been doing ever since throughout the world. Now, there are a few justified wars, say World War II and things like that, where they went to defend allies. But most of the wars and, and military actions the United States have been involved in has been to project America's power where it just simply wanted to project power. Uh, so, um, so we are locked in a battle right now, or actually we're, I would say we're winning the battle, we're gaining yeah, um, of, of uh, exposing what the U.S. has done here in Hawaii and then explaining how the U.S. got into that position uh, of imposing itself or intruding on, in the affairs of foreign countries uh, for its own benefit. McKinley was the key to that. He was the one who established that policy or the, those policies for the United States to become the bully of the world. Um, um, and so this... Uh, there's a high school that was named after McKinley. After yeah. the annexation of Hawaii, what the United States and the, the sugar planters had to do, the usurpers of our government had to do, was to, to erase the memory of our people. They so couldn't do I have a question. The sugar, the sugar cane farmers were Hawaiian though, right? No, they were all no. white. The plantation farmers uh. were all white. And and they so they had moved to the island, became farmers. Well, some of them were raised in the islands, but what they did was they took the models of the south from the plantations of the south, the U.S. South, and they applied that and built these great empires, you know, here uh, sugar empires. So it was it was, and that's how the immigration came in because there were too few Hawaiians to work in the fields because Hawaiian population had been decimated. Uh, we lost 90% of our population since the time of Cook's Landing to, to 1890. 
um, 90% of our population succumb to disease and poverty and other types of things. So, um, so the, the sugar planters had to import workers. So the first the Chinese and then the Japanese and then the Portuguese, um, Puerto Ricans, Filipinos, Koreans. And that's why Hawaii is such a mishmash of, of peoples. But the interesting thing is that Hawaii has a way of growing on you and people actually have become more Hawaiian in nature than uh, they've retained their like their individual um, ethnic identities, right. but they're very Hawaiian at heart because we've intermarried, you know, every, and people actually love Hawaii. So, um, so the, the, what we are doing right now is we're seeking to retain or restore the Hawaiian kingdom as a sovereign independent nation and to reverse the narrative that had been uh, developed by the United States successfully, um, uh, you know, spread throughout the world. Yeah. So almost everybody in the world believes that Hawaii is part of the United States. Yes, um, very but, much so. I mean, when I told people about the episode, um, everyone was shocked. A lot of people are like, wow, that's really exciting. And then they're like, but will I still be able to visit Hawaii? Um, so I think that's the biggest question of, of people um, like, from an American point of view, of course, right? Like, so they're so not it's the questions aren't about the Hawaiian people. They're like, can I still visit? Um, right. Which I find very interesting. But. Yeah, right. Very, very interesting. Yeah. If, 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 if I can't visit, then Hawaiians shouldn't be free. You know, that's... Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of the idea, right? And it's like, well, as long as I still have access, I guess they can be sovereign. I mean, I, I right. don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, we are facing an uphill battle, not an uphill battle, but we're, it's, a, it's a real challenge. Um, to dispel many of the preconceptions that people have, assumptions uh, that have been placed there. And it's not to their fault. It's just that they haven't been told anything else. Um, so, so we are working very hard to, on, on many fronts. On the international level, that's where I come in as a Minister of Foreign Affairs. So I work in the diplomatic field uh, to explain the situation to people who are also diplomats and heads of states and you know people involved in, in the political aspects to explain to them why Hawaii is not a part of the United States and why it should be restored as a sovereign independent country as it was prior to three-fourths of the United Nations. Right. <laughs> so so I met, speaking of the United Nations, that's where we met. Um, yes. So I was going to say, I think it's uh, maybe people don't understand, like the Hawaiian kingdom still exists, right? Yes. Is that right? Yes. So right. in order for there, for you to have and be the foreign minister, that means that, and being at the UN as the foreign minister, I mean, that also gives... Um, is showing like how how this country this nation it's sovereign and it exists yes. already um right. it's yeah yes so so now we, we need to translate or to we're doing fairly well at the un and with with the international community the political community uh diplomatic community but uh again the general public still has no understanding about what right. what we do have in our favor is everybody likes hawaii so when we tell our story that we're being occupied, 
unlawfully by a foreign nation, it perks up people's ears. And, and so uh, people are willing to listen to our story and we have a very compelling story if they sit yeah. down and listen to it. So we're, we have an advantage in that way that we, we find everybody we've told our story to actually commiserates with us or empathizes with us. And, One and, thing uh, I learned while preparing to speak to you today was that in 1993, actually, yeah. President Clinton also agreed with your estimation. And did he simply apologize in words or did he issue well, um, well, they a statement? Issued, they issued an official apology. Actually, it was Congress that oh, wow. passed a resolution, a joint resolution apologizing. And then President Clinton signed it. So that's why it's called the Clinton Apology, but it actually was a full apology from all yeah. the branches of the United States, or from the two major branches. I mean, um, that seems like a very large admission of guilt. And it, it, it is a total admission. So the ironic, <laughs> the ironic thing, or the, the uh, uh, yeah, the strange thing, is, is that even with the admission, the United States refuses to budge from its claim to the Hawaiian Islands. And part of that has to be has to do with a fraudulent act that they committed to try to secure Hawaii under international law. And mm -hmm. that the fake statehood of Hawaii. So basically under international law, Hawaii was in a position up until 1959 to actually um, uh, 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 claim yeah and and assert our independence as a sovereign an existing sovereign nation only okay. we, didn't know, we didn't know that that part had been kept from us that was part of the indoctrination program from 1900s 1900 up to, to the to the 1960s um and so so when the u.s offered to make hawaii a state and of course they campaigned very strongly for it and they held a plebiscite here in hawaii and all the people who showed up to vote in that plebiscite voted for statehood. Right. What, what the United States concealed from the uh, United, or then the United States reported that to the to the General Assembly of the, of, of the uh, United Nations, and then the General Assembly then at that, that point said, "Oh, okay, then the political question of Hawaii has been settled. Hawaii is part of the United States." So they they decided not to become independent. So. So we, we accept that. So that's where we were kind of locked in. But we find out that the, the, the plebiscite that was held here, the referendum, was actually a fraudulent referendum um, for on, on, in several uh, ways. And we don't have to go into detail about that, but we can prove it, that it violated international uh, standards for, for a referendum. Now, the same thing happened with Alaska. So in the, in the same report the United States gave to uh, on Hawaii, Alaska was also on that same report. So the United Nations adopted in 1959 a resolution accepting the United States that Hawaii and Alaska had become part of the United States. So we are, with Alaska, involved in correcting that error uh, by the United Nations. If we, can, if we can cause the United Nations to look at the fact that they made an error, then the United Nations would be obligated under their own charter to yeah. rescind the, the error that they made. 
to rescind that uh, 1469 resolution. Um, and by doing so, they would open up Hawaii and Alaska to self-determination. Now, Hawaii will claim we already determined who we are. You just, you guys just weren't listening. <laughs> you know, we already are a sovereign, independent nation, and we don't need to go through a process of self-determination to prove right. it to you. Alaska, however, was not a sovereign, independent nation, but they do have the right to, um, to uh, through self-determination, to determine what they want for their future. So they would come under the UN decolonization process. Anyway, Where, so whereas Hawaii, so then I think that's um, interesting and something that a lot of people have asked about. So Hawaii doesn't fall under the decolonization act because it was acquired illegally. Is that correct? That's correct. But at the time when we were placed in there in 1946, the U.S., of course, was claiming that Hawaii was part of the U.S. Right. And, and again, nobody checked or believed sure. that. Or, yeah. Right. So if, if the U.N. had... And, and the thing is, again, that indoctrination and propaganda was so complete that even here in Hawaii, we thought that we were part of the United States. And it wasn't until the, the Renaissance that started happening in the 70s that we began to realize that, one, we're landless. And how did that happen? Now, how did the, the natives of this land become uh, lose control of all of our lands? Um, and why is it under the United States? And why is this United States puppet government, the state of Hawaii, controlling everything? So the 70s, the sailing of Hokulea, the, voyaging, the first voyaging canoe in 500 years, the sailing of Hokulea, and um, the renaissance in our dance, in our music, and in our language uh, started to reawake this whole um, pride or this realization of we, uh, we were a very accomplished people and what happened. And so um, that's, it started in the 70s when we started to unravel what had happened here in Hawaii. And then in the 90s, 93, the United States apologized and we took that to mean, okay, if they apologize, they're admitting that they're really not in control here, that yeah. Hawaii is still the, United, the Hawaiian kingdom. So we started up our movement to restore, to reactivate our Hawaiian kingdom. And so that's a process we've been in since uh, 1993, uh, the reactivation of our Hawaiian kingdom. And it's been a long haul because again, the US has many ways that they can undermine and defeat things. And they keep on ignoring our story and ignoring what we have, even though they admit it. Right. Uh, wrongful doing. Um, so we, what we are looking for right now is some leverage, like the removal of the United Nations acceptance of the United States report. If we can remove that, then there is, then we have all the leverage on our side. Then U.S. has none. Right. And then we can talk. We can have peace talks, and we can come to an amicable decision of how they can vacate or, uh, you know, remove themselves, withdraw from our, our country, right. and allow us to to take over our own country. And I think um, a lot of questions also that were coming up were around. Um, I think also coming so. 
not my point of view, but questions that I, I heard and received. But people asking, well, if Hawaii becomes independent, like how are they going to function? Do they have an economy? What are they going to do? And I mean, it's a similar story or idea that the poor natives need to be saved. How could they possibly function without the United States? So um, wondering if you could just respond to that. Okay, so that's part of racism. When the Soviet Union broke up, did anyone ask how would Lithuania survive? You know, what would their economy be? Or anybody else, you know. But with a native uh, a Hawaiian or a color, uh, a nation of color, let's say, people ask that question. And it's, it's a very racist-based question. As if all of a sudden we'll revert back to brass shacks and the Stone Age because that's their, their idea of who we were, because that was what the U.S. planted in their minds. In um, order to make it okay that we took over, yeah, we're saving I, you. I think I... Um, possibly survive on our own. But anyway, so yeah. to answer that question, I just tell people, look at it this way. Everything that you see around in Hawaii, the, the huge buildings, the tourist industry, the, you know, the, all of these things, they stay the same. It's just under new management. Right. So like a big corporation that has all of these plants and, 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 you know, things, and they have a change of management. So you you get a new philosophy for how to manage a thing, but everything else is the same thing. So producing whatever you're going to produce. So this is what we're looking at. The the major difference will be we won't have the United States bossing us around. We'll be able to make our own decisions for our own needs and our own priorities. So the United States decisions are primarily driven by profits. Their best interest, exactly. Yeah, right. And and so if we remove that, if Hawaiians become in charge and we have all the hotels, we have all these things still creating our industry, uh, creating revenues, um, we don't have to upset that. Uh, the Hilton Hotel we just as happy to operate in the Hawaiian Kingdom as they do in the United States. And in fact, probably it'll be advantageous because it wouldn't have to be taxed according to the United States uh, corporate levels, things like that. And the Hawaiian Kingdom would be much more friendly to them. And they wouldn't have to jump through so many regulatory hoops. Of course, the Hawaiian Islands would be very careful about what, what we allow. But the other thing is international trade. Hawaii would be able to trade directly internationally rather than trading through the United States, where the United States makes all the decisions on what comes here. So cars that are bound for uh, Toyota, so let's say, they're right. built in the United States now, but that, say, say Japan has cars that they want to sell to the United States. They come here, they may stop over in Hawaii, but they usually just go to Los Angeles and then they they disembark all of the, the cars and then they send Hawaii's part back here. Now, they could have stopped in Hawaii and dropped off the cars here and proceeded. And that would have cost us thousands of dollars less in freight charges. Now, Hawaii pays anywhere between 30 and 60% more for regular goods than people in California or say in the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, just because of the shipping costs and the monopoly uh, and, and the restrictive shipping that the U.S. imposes 
of carriers to Hawaii. Foreign carriers cannot dock in Hawaii unless to make sure that the Hawaiians really will never gain. Yeah, let, uh, let me correct that. Foreign carriers en route to the U.S. continent cannot dock in Hawaii first. They have to go directly to the U.S. continent. If they're only coming to Hawaii, then they can dock here and then leave. They, they cannot be extra touch bases in two ports in the United States. So Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something called the Jones Act that was enacted in 1920. And, and that puts Alaska and um, Puerto Rico also at a tremendous disadvantage because of the sh extra shipping charges that we okay. Now, okay, so, but those are things that we can solve by becoming a sovereign independent nation. Another big thing, of course, is that we would erase the big red X of a target that Hawaii is for nations that are ambivalent or, the, or not ambivalent, that are uh, uh, hostile. Animosity and hostile, yeah. So, intercontinental, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Hawaii is the irresistible target that in fact it's like the number one target that needs to be struck before anything else can commence with um, any kind of war against the United States. Was that, it was 2018, right? The, um, the, there was an alert and it, it was a real alert that went out. It ended up being um, a, a, a mistake, a mishap, a false, a false alarm. But um, I, I have friends in Hawaii, and I had um, there were some researchers that I was working with that were there on the island when it happened. Um, it was so incredibly scary. I, yeah. I want to say ten for ten minutes, or like a very was, for a very long time. Almost forty minutes. Forty minutes. Like, yeah. Forty minutes before uh, they realized they made a mistake. That the entire island was told that they were about to die, yeah. basically. That a nuclear weapon was headed to the island and to right. take cover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so that, that leads, it begs two questions. One, the only reason Hawaii is a target is because of the United States military installations here. If the installations were not here, we would not be a target for anyone in the world. Or, or military strike. But the installations and, and the method of warfare has, has, has improved, or if you want to say improved, has greatly changed since um, World War II when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor for that same reason. They had to take the US military installations here. But now it's really one nuclear warhead, you know, five times the, the size of Nagasaki yeah. Hiroshima. Yeah. Mind <laughs> um, uh, would would wipe out not just Pearl Harbor and Hickam Air Force Base, but it would wipe out the entire island of Oahu um, because there are bases on all parts of the island that the, that, yeah. that the enemy would have to take out. So and then then there's you know, nuclear warheads that are, that are practically unstoppable. You have the nuclear a multi warheads and things like that. And you have submarine-launched nuclear weapons. All of these things puts Hawaii not only uh, uh, as a target, but at total at the mercy of of we have no defense whatsoever. The U.S. brags that they have some missiles to shoot down 
incoming missiles. But say a country like China launches 30 of them with multiple warheads, there's no way the U.S. is going to knock them all down. All the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and then now we're talking about hypersonic missiles, which cannot be hit down by other missiles. So um, this is, it's ridiculous to think that Hawaiians will survive a nuclear attack by any other country. And the only reason we are at risk is because the United States has its military bases here. Yeah. This base is expendable to the United States. If, we, if they lose Hawaii, they've got other bases that they can use to prosecute a war. But we have nowhere else to go. Yeah. And we and have, no, yeah. And there's, there's nothing, no defense. There's no defense and nothing actually created here for us to shelter ourselves. There's no nuclear yeah. shelters. That no, was one of the things that I learned uh, in 2018 with, with that scare. Um, and it's, uh, my friends who who were there at the at the time, they were saying like, you know, it's saying to take shelter. There's absolutely nowhere to take shelter. People were right. trying to like pull up manhole covers right. and go into sewers. Um, but there's yeah. there was absolutely nowhere nowhere to go. Nowhere that was provided. Right. right. And then for for months afterwards, you know, there was a lot of talk about how you should shelter yourself and things like that. Nothing prior, of course, but months afterwards they. We're talking about that. And since then, nothing has been done and the talk has ceased. And and we're at even greater risk today because of again the the anim, uh, you know the, the rhetoric that's going on with China and, and the US. Right. I personally don't believe China will at- attack, but oh, if they have to, they do have to take out Hawaii. First. Yeah, yeah, it would it's always going to be Hawaii first. Um, and then there's Okinawa and Guam and those. And so we have put together a uh, an alliance, so to speak, kind of a loose one with Okinawa and Guam to, to campaign for the de- demilitarization of our islands because it only suits one country, and that's yeah. the United States. The United States. We're expendable. It was very interesting. It wasn't until I moved to Japan that I learned about Guam. Um, mm-hmm. so you, I be speaking to Japanese people, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I went. I've been to America. Go, oh, where have you been?" And I'm like, "Guam." I'm like, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, what? Yeah, I, and that's just something that's not at all ever spoken about um i learned nothing about that we learned nothing about the filipino war like none none of the um even in world war ii learning about the pacific theater in my textbook it was two pages um world war ii we spent a half a year on world war ii all on the European side, the Pacific, like I said, two pages, and it was Japan bombed the U.S., the U.S. bombed Japan, America won, we're amazing, the war is over, and now Adams for peace, woohoo! Yeah, Yeah. there are some fascinating YouTube uh, things on the war in the Pacific, you know, created by Time Life and some of the other, and Social Geographic. I mean, amazing, you know, because that is a forgotten war. Of course, we in the Pacific followed that. I mean, my parents did, 
Yeah. I mean, my family was uh, destroyed by that war. My grandmother was in a Japanese concentration camp um, oh. on the island of Indonesia in Jakarta. Um, oh. And, and most, of, most of our family was killed um, during that war. She was the only one who, who escaped. Yeah. yeah. I have four friends from Okinawa who lost fam- whole families. Uh, I think yeah. most a quarter of the population of Okinawa died, and they were all civilians. Yeah, I was going to say, and oh, uh, you know, even in uh, Hiroshima, when they talk about the 80% civilian, a lot of the quote-unquote military that they were counting were middle school students who were militarized. Um, and just, you know, things like that of manipulating statistics and, I mean, a percentage of 80% civilian is already horrific and gratuitous, um, but to just, for them to be like, oh yeah, 20, 20% were military. No, not even, not even 20%. Right. Yeah. So anyway, um, going back to Hawaii, so our, our, um, ultimate goal yeah. is to restore Hawaii as an independent nation and to be a witness and a participant in a peaceful world because Hawaii has I believe what we can share with the world and that is aloha and our people are really 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 see that as our calling to the world that we can share aloha we can help to bring peace to the world Wonderful. so yeah and and we're serious about that and we already export aloha a lot you know which is why the world has very high esteem for for hawaii because not because of our people not, but because they sense this aloha that so how how can we help spread aloha what what ways can we do that is there any way that i can people can help uh with that mission in the world well, I, I can let you more, know more about that, but uh, Hawaiians, you know, of course, our Hawaiian values are very important to us, yeah. and uh, and uh, there are certain words in, in Hawaii, Hawaii that um, relate our values, and I wanted want to talk a little bit about that. So, um, th- there is a word called lokahi. Lokahi. Uh, lokahi. And, and, and its symbol is, is this. Hmm. Now you saw that you may have seen it on, on the on the mountain Kukia Imauna on the, the whole uh, effort to uh, to stop the thirty meter telescopes. Yeah. But this is the symbol that, that so what it means is the triangle. It's God mm-hmm. on top, man, and the land. And with those three, you are in perfect balance uh, for society for for man to not just uh, not just survive but to, to thrive right. if those things are in balance that we have a, a thriving um, society um, and then so uh, so the, the great uh, injury that happened to Hawaii uh, the Hawaiians with the takeover by the United States was not so much the, the loss of political power or economic power it was the separation of the people from the land and this is the, the biggest um, driving un, un, uh, uh, say unconscious or subconscious driving uh, of our people. We want to get reconnected to our land. We don't have access to it right now because the US, U.S. claims to own it and they've sold off parts of it. And they've used, used it for military bases. 
things are off limits. We're consigned to these very small areas, almost like reservations. Yeah. Although our people are free to move about, we're well integrated into the rest of the community. You know, we have like I'm in the home we have right now is owned by a friend of mine who's Hawaiian. You know, yeah. um, and it's, it's in a very nice suburban neighborhood. Um, but but the thing is, we don't have control of our lands anymore, and that is a radical disruption of who we are as a people and how we expect to live and survive, not just survive, but to thrive. So that's one of the things we're looking for is to be able to put our people back on the land. And this is where our foods come from, you know, are very important because we want to eat the food from our own lands, grown by our own hands. Yeah. You know, uh, because there is a spiritual quality to that that is unexplainable. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's one, one thing. The other, the other thing is, um, uh, let's see, it's the other term uh, is one, there's one called pono. And pono means, pono, it has lots of meaning. It means righteous, righteousness, right, law, the law, something like that. Um, but its real true meaning is balance. Okay. It means that things are in balance. So that means legal and, and legally as, as well as politically and all that needs to be in balance. So Pono and is, energetically. Is that also like energetically and in nature and Yeah, yeah. And and in relationships. Yeah. They need to be in balance. So there is a process called Ho'oponopono, which means bring, bringing things into true balance between people and particularly between two people. So, that, and that process is an ancient process of how do we make things right between two people. And we believe we can use this for international peace. I was just gonna ask, does that work also with and that, larger and, and larger bodies? Yes, yeah, and that's our intention, yeah. Uh, so, that's Pono. The, another one is Kuliana. And Kuliana is, what is your God-given responsibility? And, Does each person have a different kuleana? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Some are farmers. Some are fishermen. You know, some are house builders and are, or businessmen and things like that. The thing is, what is your calling and and what it, and you are, your duty is to do the best in that calling and then to pass it on to others. So kuleana is, is a responsibility and a calling. Um, and then, of course, the word aloha, which means peace. It means caring for one another. The deepest meaning is that I respect you as a fellow human being. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen images of our people when they greet each other. We press nose and, fore, nose and forehead together and we take a breath. And that is a symbol of aloha. It means um, I share your breath and you share my breath. And ultimately, that breath comes from God. Mm. Because, and so we see where the Bible says, and, and our own um, uh, religions say, that God leaned in and breathed life into that first man. We call him Kumuhonua. Um, so God breathed life into Adam. And that, so, so us sharing that same breath that God gave us is a symbol that we both were created by God 
and we both have the responsibility to care for one another. So aloha is that deep. Yeah. So it's just not greetings. It means I greet you in the name of God and in the name of brotherhood and, and our relationship and all that. It's a okay. really beautiful um, idea and connection and reminder of our interconnectivity and yes. you know that what what I do affects you and what you do affects me and it's yes. really uh, and, and, such and an important like daily reminder. That's really beautiful. And our shared heritage, that life itself is our shared heritage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then um, there's malama. Uh, now malama means to take care of things. Okay. Uh, so say malama ikaaina means to take care of the land. Malama ikikai to take of, take care of the ocean. Malama ikapoe to take care of the people. Um, and so this is something very much ingrained in our culture as well. So if we take these terms and these concepts and we apply them to the operation of a country. What kind of a country do you think we would have? A no. very balanced, peaceful one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, in tune with, with each other, relationships, and, and making things pono, making things right, and and uh, in balance. So that's the difference. So when people say, what's way going to look like? Visually, it'll look the same, but you're going to feel a whole big difference as to how we operate. They'll be able to like actually the the amazing feeling that people get when they visit Hawaii and that connection and spirituality and people people call it a power spot and um, I think as the Hawaiian kingdom gains its sovereignty like that that feeling will be able to grow more and more. It's amazing that uh, the island and the people have been able to keep that alive under the oppression and occupation, but. I, I think that's the the feeling that will grow and expand um, and become like a, a beacon uh, in the Pacific. You know, instead of a, a military outpost, it can be a beacon of hope and peace. And that's right. so incredibly well, exciting. Well, earlier, we don't look at the free Hawaii or, or Hawaii being restored as a country simply as a political or economic reality. We see it as our calling. That this is who we're supposed to be, and if we exemplify this as aloha and kapu aloha and pono and kuleana and all of these, um, then we actually are bringing something of value to the world. I love that. So, would you say the way to shift power is mm -hmm. to become more and more yourselves? Yes. Like being, yeah. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Is there any anything that you would, um, as far as ways of shifting power, or um, I mean, you, your entire existence is about shifting power. So I feel mm -hmm. like you exemplify what what we talk about on this show. Um, but is there anything that you would recommend to people who want to get involved or want to help in the movement? Um, other ways for people to to help um, help continue the shifting of power. Um, well, actually, be prayerful about it. You know, be thinking about us, and and also be alert so that when things come up, you start to see them uh, in terms of of what where we're headed as a nation. 
um, like the article that appeared in the New York Times on surfing, it really yeah. captured us. It, you know, it, it basically said, you know, that this is something that, that Hawaii owns or, or has contributed we, to. The yeah. You know, um, because surfing in itself, by the way, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, uh, Hawaii is going to be a, an event, of, uh, surfing is going to be an event at the Tokyo Olympics, if they ever have it. But <laughs> but uh, the thing is, it's an acknowledgement of a sport that was invented in Hawaii, created in Hawaii. Um, and many of our chiefs were, were huge proponents of it, you know, our Conqueror Kamehameha was yeah. a great surfer and um so and and then surfing not only began here but it really started to expand throughout the world in the, in the 60s um and uh, then out of that came skateboarding and kite surfing and uh snowboarding you know, and like all, all of the boardings <laughs> some of them which are already olympic sports yeah. you know <laughs> but surfing hasn't been and so uh so what we, we we do think believe is that things coming from Hawaii can be very infectious and can be received by others. So if surfing can be received, because that is is man with nature, and you know using the power of nature to to have fun, you know. And, but you you have to be in you have to all of the words that you mentioned uh, you have yeah. to be embodying that in order to That's surf, right. which That's is right. what's so beautiful about. Yeah about it right yeah and so most of the people who surf don't do it as a competitive sport they yeah. do it as an exercise for for you know it's like yoga yeah. or something like that it, it's a self-realization kind of an exercise yeah you really yeah. do feel the connection with the earth and yes um yeah i i've I've been surfing now about 13 or 14 years and um, I remember when I first started and I would be fighting against all of the waves trying to get out past the breaks and um, I, I ended up having to take some lessons because it was just it was relentless and the thing that the instructor he was like you're great once you're like out there but you're fighting against the ocean you're never gonna win never yeah. ever gonna win you need to relax yeah <laughs> yeah and that that was it as soon as soon as i relaxed and i learned to like count and breathe and just like take it slow uh -huh. like you know it might take you 10 minutes to get out there but instead of fighting against the entire ocean like just wait right. for the bricks wait for the breath and it's like oh wow look at this yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's it's such a an amazing metaphor for how how we connect with others how we connect with the planet um and and also a really important reminder of what it's like to struggle against all of that when you're out of balance when you're out of flow the feeling of it you can you can jump into the ocean and, and get reminded real fast mm -hmm. uh, what it's like yeah. to be out of flow <laughs> Yeah, and that's what yeah. many of our people surf daily or several yeah. times a week. You know, there was I, w a, I wish I was near a place very, very prominent businessman, very wealthy, prominent businessman. Um, he's passed away now, but he surfed every day, uh, you know, since he was like 20 or, or, or maybe younger. 
but he was out in the water every day. And so even though he's a big corporate giant, you know, he go out every day to serve. Absolutely, yeah. it's a way of life. The philosophy, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. So just be, be alert about what's happening in Hawaii and and join in with us in our endeavors when when you can. There's going to be, for instance, um, there's going to be a petition put up uh, in the next few days to encourage uh, the Olympic Committee to include mm-hmm. Hawaii as a country uh, in in the competitions uh, for the Tokyo Olympics because Hawaii has not been accepted. We put it in application some time ago, but apparently it's been stalled because U.S. intervention. Uh, we don't want to say any of that stuff, but. The thing is, we want the Olympic Committee to put Hawaii in as a separate participant in in the Olympics. Um, so the surfers can surf under the flag surfers. of Hawaii, right? Like yeah. <laughs> the place where this was created should be able to fly their yeah, flag. Which, which in the international surfing uh, competitions, they always surf for Hawaii, not for the United States. The United States has their own teams and all that. In the international, I didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah, so there's time. already precedent Italy, for Argentina, it. Argentina, Brazil, all have, New Zealand, all have surfer uh, teams. Oh, I know. I knew that they all had international teams. Yeah. I didn't know that Hawaii had that. It was a separate team from the U.S. team. Yeah, it's always considered separate, uh, or you know, the, the birthplace of surfing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's already a precedent. So there's absolutely yeah. no reason exactly. why. It's always been the, the, the precedent. It's never been anything else. So there's no reason why the International Olympic Committee should treat it any other way. Yeah. Um, All so, right. Well, let us know where the. It will go online pretty soon. Okay. Excellent. Let us know. We'll add it to the show notes and also do some social media blast. Um, there are a bunch of. Uh, people that I know in different surfing communities, so certainly we'll spread it, spread the word, and let people know. Okay, and I'll send you another petition that you can sign, and that is to change the name of McKinley High School, and and that is something that we're doing to call attention to the fact that Hawaii was never annexed, and that to name a school McKinley High School, especially since it was the most important public high school in Hawaii for many many years. Yeah. Um, uh, that, and that was the, the center of the indoctrination of the Hawaiian children into believing they were American citizens. Right. That's where it came from. And so um, we want to change the name and we need people to sign this petition. Um, and it doesn't matter where you're from. Uh, it's the principle that matters. And that, that is we're not honoring somebody who actually made us into a captive nation. Right. Yeah. No Stockholm Syndrome. Let's yes. get rid of McKinley High School. Got it. Send over those petitions. I personally will be more than happy to sign. And um, again, we'll post it on the website and in the show notes. And um, definitely send out some social media blasts as well. Um, but it's very exciting to see how far the movement has come i know you've been involved in it since the inception of it so thank you for your work (laughs) yeah very very long time um and it's amazing it's amazing to see what you've been able to accomplish in the last 50 years more 50 plus years okay one other thing i'd like to leave with you yeah Um, 
my actual profession is a musician, is as a musician. So, I've heard you play. I had the cool. honor of hearing you. So I want people to go to look for us um, on YouTube. Yeah. And and look for Leon and Malia. Um, please, and please have, send us the link because I'm so excited to um, show the world and let the world see uh, your beautiful. I didn't know your wife uh, joined you, so it's even more fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're a duo. I'm at, That's wonderful. Um, so yeah, we're co-writers on all the songs and producer. We produce a lot of things. That's so fun. Um, you you did a song at the decolonization. I think it was one of the last. Ooh, excellent. Um, if you have a picture of that, we'll put that on the website too. Sure. If you could send that to me, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think the decolonization conference at the UN, it was one of the last events before coronavirus, or before the corona shutdown. But I remember you shared a, a really great song with us at the end. Oh, yeah. I don't remember which song it was. But, yeah. <laughs> It was very fun, so thank you for that. Yeah, um, yeah. so for uh, the folks listening out there, midheaven.network, you will be able to find the replay there, will be archived, and then if podcasts are your thing, not a problem, we are on all of the platforms. The links are in the show notes. Please find us at your favorite podcast location. And Leon, thank you so, so much for joining us today. We're so excited well, to support this work. And, and aloha to everybody. And aloha, remember, means love one another. So, aloha, everyone. Aloha, Leon. Thank you so much. Bye. Aloha. Aloha.